Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I love introducing you to people who've worked on their own development and help others become the best version of themselves. That's also a key focus of my company, Grow Strong Leaders. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people connect with each other at work. And you can find out more about us at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Tim Shore. Tim, welcome to my show. Oh, Meredith, it is an honor to be with you today. You're one of those special people that make the world a better place. And so I'm really excited about spending this time with you. Oh, thank you. Well, I feel the same way about you. In fact, I want to give a shout out to our friend and colleague, Melanie Ake, because that's how we originally met. We were both featured speakers on her Heart of Leadership live event in December, and Tim was the closing speaker. And as soon as I heard his presentation, I thought, I've got to have him as a guest on my show. I just loved everything about him in terms of his content and his approach and his manner. So Tim, before we jump into our conversation, let me give a little bit more of a formal introduction to my audience. Tim is one of the top hypnotists in the world, and he's the author of six books, including The Power of Optimism, Get Out of Your Way, and One Belief Away. He's the host of the podcast, How to Be Mesmerizing. Tim I love this. Tim is improving the lives of people around the world with his revolutionary one belief away method. His personal mission is to make the world a happier place by helping millions of people end needless emotional suffering. Amen to that, Tim. I love that. And (laughs) you've worked with so many people. Let's back up, though, and start with your early life experiences that led you to study hypnosis in the first place. And then after you give us that context, describe how you've incorporated hypnosis and other strategies in your work with clients today. Yes. So I had a lot, I grew up in the seventies and, you know, those were wild times. Uh, It was the norm to uh, pick on people and be sarcastic and find people's weaknesses and, kind of really get to them. And, and so uh, I grew up where I would hang out with friends and one day they were your best friends. And the next day they seem like they were your worst enemies and that sense of instability. And then when I was 12 years old, I remember the phone rang and I answered it. And there was a woman on the other line and she said, honey, find your mom. There's been an accident. My dad was an electrician at us steel. And uh, while he was working on an electrical panel, it exploded. And it burned him really bad. And so my parents were suddenly at a Loyola burn unit and I moved in with my grandparents and my whole world changed. It was like the, the carpet was yanked out from underneath me. And so what happens is we all have what I call big T and little T traumas, right? I had a, some big T traumas like those experiences and then a whole bunch of other small T traumas being humiliated, embarrassed in the front of the class, kids teasing me and all kinds of, of, um, uh, experiences that f- make us feel like we're less than. 
and, and that we're not good enough and there's something wrong with us. And so what happens is from those experiences, our unconscious mind on its own creates these beliefs, you know, what we think these experiences mean. And without our permission, it starts developing this software in our unconscious mind that, uh, you know, these beliefs that make us feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. I'll be rejected. I'm going to be abandoned. Uh, you know, all these worries and fears come from these beliefs that then impact us as adults and we don't make the connection. And so if we're struggling with our business or we're struggling in our relationship or we're struggling with our health, we're struggling with our money or, or with our um, self-confidence and self-esteem, we don't realize it's because of those beliefs that were formed in our early childhood. So I went to school for psychology. I figured that's where I could figure out how to get rid of my anxiety. While I was going to school there, they had guest speakers that were coming in talking about how they approached uh, using therapy to help people. One of them happened to be a hypnotist and uh, they asked for a volunteer. And I thought that's how I would get my confidence that I would try to make people laugh and be the class clown. And so um, I said, yeah, I'll cluck like a chicken. I didn't know anything about hypnosis. And, uh, and I felt so peaceful after that session. It was like that knot in my stomach disappeared for a little while. And I was like, what is this? Because I wasn't experiencing that in any of the talk therapies that we were learning. And I immediately felt more peaceful and it lasted for a week before the anxiety came back because I was good at doing anxiety, even though I didn't know what I was doing it. I thought it was happening to me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I, I continued to go to school and got my degrees in psychology, but I also started learning about hypnosis and got my certifications in that. And then I learned about neurolinguistic programming. And then I learned about, you know, every other, you know, EFT and EMDR and all these other initials, all these ways of helping people to get results quicker by shifting how their brain is processing the world around them. And, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. And so it's been a 32 year journey. And from that, I've done tens of thousands of sessions and, and really discovered what's going on in our unconscious mind and how to make rapid shifts that give people almost instant relief. And so that's what I'm up to. <laughs> I love that. So yeah. let's, let's start with a distinction. You mentioned the unconscious mind. Mm. What do you, how do you distinguish between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind? Because most of us think our conscious mind is running things, but that's not really the case, is it? No, it's actually the opposite. So your unconscious mind is kind of like that computer in the back of your brain, the hard drive that's running the core programs. Now you're the uh, core uh, programmer, right? And so you may be, uh, you know, deciding what program you want to open. You might decide if you want to have a couple screens open at the same time, or if you're my computer, you have 30 tabs open at the same time. <laughs> right? I've been I working on, on not doing that anymore. Right. So, but, um, uh, so we're trying to keep like the surface stuff going with the decisions that we make, but the programs are designed to run. So no matter what I do, Microsoft Word is going to run the same way or iMovie is going to run the same way. And so our unconscious mind has these programs that are running and it causes us to think, feel, and behave in a very specific way based on the program. So if you have a program, a belief that the world is unsafe and you can't trust people, you're going to approach every, dis every decision with uh, you know, a sense of mistrust and a sense of skepticism and a sense of hesitation. If you believe that life is a school and you can learn from everything, 
then you're going to be more quick to take action. You're going to kind of trust people more. You're going to assume that things are going to work out for you because you can learn from, from any situation, good or bad. And so those beliefs really uh, skew how you view the world and what decisions you make as a result. And the fact is, like you said, most people don't realize that they have these programs in place. So they're working really hard and not getting the experiences or the outcomes that they want. And then they think, what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I do this? And it reinforces those beliefs, those original programs, it strengthens them. And we're doing this without realizing that we're doing it. And so your unconscious mind controls, um, you know, really it, it houses your beliefs, your habits, your conditioned responses, your life experiences. It's the emotional part of you. You know, they say in sales that you can use logic, but emotion is what causes people to buy. Right. And that's what uh, what's happening in our mind for every decision. We're based, we're basing most of it on emotions and old beliefs from the past. We're not really making decisions based on what's happening in front of us just in the present moment, as most of us would like to believe. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I found interesting, because I love your book, by the way, let me put a plug in for it now. Mm -hmm. And at the end, One Belief Away, it's an awesome book. Thank and you. one of the reasons I love it so much, Tim, is it's it's like you're talking to me personally. You know, you just have this warm conversational way to, you know, do away with scientific jargon and just make it very real. And your own personal stories are so powerful in there, too. One of the things that I think is important for my listeners to really get is there's a there is like a number one limiting belief that you have discovered with all these thousands of people that you've worked with, including leaders at all levels mm -hmm. of the organization. Tell us about that number one limiting belief and why do you think it's the case that it is the number one? Well, I'm not sure why it's the number one. I just, it kept coming up over and over and over. I did over 15,000 hypnosis coaching sessions and it just kept coming up time and time again. And it is the fear of not being good enough. And that's where imposter syndrome comes from. That's where the fear of public speaking comes from. That's where most of our stress and worry comes from, that something bad's going to happen and I'm not going to be good enough to handle it. Most business leaders and entrepreneurs are afraid that they're not going to be able to know exactly what to do. Uh, and that comes from that fear of not being good enough or smart enough or, or whatever it is. And all the other fears stem from that fear of not being good enough. So the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of abandonment, the fear of success, right? All these other fears that we have uh, come from that basic core idea that somehow in some way, I'm, I don't have what it takes to measure up. And it probably, if I think about it deeply, which I have, it probably comes from an accum accumulation, not just one bad event, but an accumulation of hundreds, if not thousands of experiences. Um, some research, cognitive researchers, uh, mind researchers say that by the time we're 18 years old, we've experienced over 180,000 negative comments or thoughts directed our way. 180,000 negative thoughts. Imagine that. And so there's a reason why people feel so insecure. And when you look around uh, on social, uh, it really shows how bad it is because many teenagers grow up to be adults have such high anxiety 
so much depression, which is a fear that you can't do anything about your situation. You're helpless and it's hopeless, right? So much um, pain comes from the ways that we develop to deal with those feelings for eating and smoking and drinking and drugs and the, the legal drugs, you know, the pharmacies and the medical profession, they got a pill for everything, you know, so you're feeling a little stressed and you didn't sleep well last night. Oh, you probably need a pill for that. No, <laughs> that described everybody that's on this planet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we've got to learn how to use our mind. And that's why having programs like yours, Meredith, is so important because you're bringing the best tools and insights and strategies that help people to live a, ma- a more fulfilling, happy life. Well, you know, one of the things people are told is to say affirmations instead of saying, mm-hmm. I'm not good enough, to say, I am good enough. But that mm-hmm. by itself, doesn't work. Explain why that is a limited and really not very effective approach. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it can make things worse. Right. Talk about that too. Because if you say, you know, I'm a good person, I'm worthy of love. um, I attract money everywhere I go. And then that doesn't feel like that's the reality. And then someone calls you up and they're mean or someone pushes a button inside of you that makes you think of the past, or you look at your desk full of bills, you're like, I'm not prosperous. It makes you feel like you're lying to yourself. It makes you feel like more of a fraud. It makes you feel like you're stupid for even having hope. And then it just kicks in the negativity even more. And so the reason that positive affirmations are not your first line of defense, your best approach in the beginning Now that will change if you do this, but the reason that it's not effective is it's like going outside and cutting the top off of all the weeds, all the dandelions in your yard. You just go and you pull all the tops off of them. Does that get rid of the weeds? No, (laughs) it doesn't. (laughs) Right. You did all that work. You went out there, you cut all those dandelions. And then the next day, it seems like you have, you know, twice as many. How did that happen? It's because you didn't pull them out at the root. And so what happens is we never get deep enough. One of the reasons why my method works so well is because I go to the deepest core belief and change that. We literally change the soil of your mind. It's not just even pulling out the roots. It's also changing the soil of your unconscious mind. And the way that you do that is by upgrading your unconscious beliefs and then creating new experiences of self-love that you can refer back to. One of the reasons people have a hard time letting go of fears and skepticism or pessimism is because they have lots of examples from their past. All this proof, yeah, this happened and this happened, that's why I feel this way. Well, I think that in the beginning, certain things happen that cause you to feel that way, but then those beliefs cause you to filter more stuff in a way that was reinforcing those beliefs, Mm -hmm. or it would cause you to show up with energy that would then, so if you show up mistrusting someone, And then all of a sudden they feel your energy of mistrust and then they behave in that way. Then you're like, oh, look, see, but they're behaving based on your energy that you showed up with. Right. And we don't know that. And so our old beliefs get reinforced. So what we do is we create new experiences in your unconscious mind that create self-love, that improve the soil. I had someone that was into horticulture and she said the best way to get rid of something like weeds is to plant a bunch of flowers. Because the flower seeds will change the soil 
and it will cause the weeds to start to die and it will cause the flowers to grow more because you're changing the soil. And I thought, that's brilliant. Why don't we change the soil in our unconscious mind? How do you do that? And so those are the questions I've been asking. And because I had thousands of sessions to experiment, (laughs) you know, they call it a practice for a reason. (laughs) Um, I was able to, uh, to learn how to do it. And that's what I teach in the One Belief Away book. Well, one of the things I would love for you to share so we can go from the conceptual to concrete. Yes. There was a vice president of marketing that yes. I heard you describe that you helped because he was very competitive and it was not oh, working yes. well for him with his team. Tell us that story, because I think that's quite powerful. And then what you did and then what the result was afterwards. Yes, it can be very challenging because when you walk into uh, a company, then it's like a family and many families are dysfunctional. So when you develop those dysfunctional coping habits and communication skills, uh, you bring it into your work family and then it all shows up there. And it's been so clear. I mean, I've seen people that um, people that are the caretakers and people that are the jokesters and people that are the, the negatives, no matter what you say, you know, they're always, uh, a, you know, a Debbie Downer, right. Or a pessimist. And, uh, and then people who are going to go in and save the day. And so you have the same kinds of things that you would see in a firstborn, a middle child, the youngest kid. <laughs> right. And so, uh, so that shows up in your work family. And so this particular person was, um, I'm just going to call him John just for, uh, you know, so uh, John was um, very sarcastic and always joking around. Now, he felt it was in a fun way, but he had to win. He was very competitive. Now, imagine someone hyper competitive in the workplace, (laughs) right? That doesn't sound like anything new. And so, so he was very, very competitive. And one of the reasons I was brought into that company is because they said that there was a lot of negativity, a lot of silos, a lot of finger pointing back at different departments. There wasn't a lot of respectful communication. People didn't trust their leaders. And so when I went in there, I could see why. I mean, first of all, there was very, uh, there was a lot of sarcasm. And then there was uh, this, you know, he, he and his whole team were always going back and forth at each other, you know, trying to, um, uh, to, to um, one up somebody else, you know, with, with trying to make fun of them. And they always thought it was fun. Like we got one time a cardboard cutout of the employee wearing a bikini and put it on the main entrance. They walked in and they see a cardboard cutout of themselves in a bikini, (laughs) you know, and it was a man. Right. And then, and, and so people laugh like this. And when you laugh like this and you put your hand over your mouth, that's not a good laugh to have because it's like, Oh, you shouldn't have done that right? Kind of laughter. And people were doing that all the time. And so it was causing a lot of problems. And of course, a lot of times people, when they're in a successful position, they don't want to give that up because they feel like that's their mojo. And that's what got them to where they are. That competitiveness. I had one president of a company. It was a successful company. He's like, I'm the money man. That's what I do here. You know, and his culture was horrible, even though they had beautiful awards you know, for their customer service and, and beautiful awards for their culture. And I'm like, did you make these on your own? Because your people hate it here. (laughs) So he didn't like that. (laughs) But anyway, uh, um, so I sat down with him and I had this conversation. I said, you're getting older now. These people look up to you. 
right? And there's a lot of this competitiveness and it's wearing people down. So what would happen is instead of you being like that competitive dad who's playing with his kids and he's going to win because he got to humble his kids, which I think is a weird parenting style that a lot of people use, um, mm-hmm. not very smart or effective. Um, and so you don't, as a parent, need to humble kids. Life will do it on its own. You need to be their biggest fan. So, um, but anyway, uh, I said, why don't you shift into grandfather and see what that's like? Because grandfathers, and if it was a woman, I would have said grandmothers. Okay? Grandfathers um, don't need to prove themselves. They already have. All they do now is others up. They don't have to be the best. They focus now on helping others to feel like they're the best. And that struck a chord in him because he had kids and they were older. And he was thinking about a few years down the road. And I said, would you go and rip on your kids? And then he started thinking about it because, of course, he had because what we do at work, we do everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, some people try to wear two different hats, but it's hard. You still show up. Those dysfunctions still deep through. And so, uh, so he took that to heart, Meredith, and he decided he was going to show up as a grandfather. And so he stopped doing all that stuff and he tried to help his team do it, but he had them so indoctrinated into it that he ended up letting go of a couple of them because they couldn't turn it off. And he Mm. felt really guilty about that, but it opened the door for, for new people to come in and it transformed that department. And then it transformed the leadership team because if he could do it and anybody could do it, because he was like the king of it, of sarcasm and all this. And when he started changing that around, he got just as passionate about complimenting people and lifting people up and holding people accountable and thinking before you speak. And, um, and it was such an impactful move that years later, he ended up running that company. The leader, the president um, spot open, position opened, and, uh, and he got it. And everybody was very excited for him, and he's been doing a great job with it. If we would not have had that conversation, that would not have happened. Mm-hmm. It it shows the power of helping someone make a real shift in, in their beliefs about what, who they are and what's possible. I just love that. It's, it's very profound. And it also emphasizes the power of one life to make Mm -hmm. a huge change among many, the ripple effect, the modeling that he, he did. Did you end up supporting him over time? As opposed to having just one initial conversation, because I would think it would have been difficult for him to make that kind of a long-term shift by himself. No, that's excellent. You're exactly right. Yeah, we had, I was with that company for six years and that was about the second year into it where I was really having that conversation with him. And then I was with him for another five years and then just every, you know, month or two on that sixth year. And it transformed that organization. I mean, they thrive through the pandemic because they had the core culture in place. You know, when I first got there, um, 45% of employees trusted their leadership team. When I left, it was 97% and and increasing, right? They almost doubled their revenue. And when I asked the president of the company uh, what he attributed that to, he said, our training, our training with you. He said, you didn't just make us a better company, you made us better people. And that's what I think about. I don't think about making a better company. I think about each person um, transforming in their own life because 
you know, I don't come from corporate America. So if they made another $5 million, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> right. That's, that's exciting. Good for you. I can use that as a KPI, right. In a case study. But when they say, you know, I made up with my kids soccer coach and it's so much more fun. Now we used to yell back and forth and now we're really focused on lifting the kids up, you know, or my marriage has improved now. Right. Or I feel so much more confident about myself. I believe in myself now. And I got that promotion because I believed in myself instead of doubting my abilities to lead a team. I mean, that's, that's what lights me up. Mm -hmm. I know just from reading about you and, and hearing you talk on in other podcasts that I've listened to, let's, let's tie in this idea of kindness, because I know that's so important to you. It is to me also. In fact, my dad was known for being kind. That was a key value of his and it rippled through all of us so that I'm with you so closely on that. For people who are in leadership roles and they hear that word kind, sometimes they interpret it as soft you know, not strong enough, uh, maybe being too vulnerable. How do you define kindness and what does it look like in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I never thought of kindness ever being vulnerable. I thought it, to me, it's more empowering, right? Um, There's an old idea that the person with the most behavioral flexibility is the one who's in control. And what that means is that the more resources you have, the more ways you have to respond in any situation, the more you're in charge of that situation. Most people have one approach, you know, and they they hide because they don't like conflict or they start yelling because they feel like that's what you have to do. So it's a fight or flight response. Some people become aloof. People hide behind their intellect and they don't want to have any emotions, right? And so some people get really distracted because they don't want to deal with it. So they're always going in a thousand different directions. And when someone's under pressure, those one tricks usually just amplify, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're a yeller and someone upsets you, you just yell louder. And that doesn't, uh, you know, it's not a very effective approach long-term. So, uh, If you have several different ways that you can show up, so you can show up curious, or you can show up where you challenge someone, or you can show up as a best friend, or you can show up as a, as a mentor, right? Or you can be playful, right? Or you can be compassionate. You can show up in a variety of different ways and being kind is just one of those ways. So it actually is a strength. And I was always taught you get more flies with honey than vinegar. Right. And that's how you'll get a response out of me. If you send me a nasty email, right. That, and then I'm probably not going to want to respond to you or I'm not going to respond quickly. I'll tell you a story. So there was um, uh, a woman that I was coaching and she was a part of an executive team. And she said that they were having a lot of difficulty with their just distribution line. Right. As you can imagine, our whole economy has been thrown off the last couple of years. And so she was really struggling because this company was supposed to be sending trucks and trucks weren't showing up and it was really hurting their company. So instead of sending another email, she called the person and she decided that she was going to be extraordinarily kind and supportive. And so she called the person up and it was another woman on the other end of the line. And she, and she started with, you must be going through so much right now. And I just want you to know that we really appreciate everything that you're doing and how hard it is. 
And there's so much stuff that's out of your control. And I'm sure people are calling you up and giving you an earful, which is not your fault. And, and so I just want you to know that, that we are really, uh, um, we're here for you and we're supporting you. I know that we've had a hard time getting uh, the trucks here. And I just want you to know that we've got your back and we believe in you. And she said, the woman was so taken aback. She said, you know, I, I, I really, that means a lot to me. I'm like teary eyed. Um, she says, hang on a second. And then she, she got back on the phone and she said, I moved something around. You'll have a truck tomorrow morning. <laughs> you know, and that like makes me emotional right now thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. Because the woman was intentional and she was, um, it was real. It was sincere. Mm -hmm. She wasn't putting on a show to try to manipulate someone because you can feel that you can yes. feel fake, <laughs> right? Yes. You'll feel the insincerity. And so she genuinely had to get into that state of mind and put herself in that other person's shoes mm -hmm. and have that kind of empathy and compassion before she made the call. And then it came across. Yeah. And, uh, and she was going to be that way. Even if the woman said, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. You're not going to get your truck till next week. She was going to show up kind, regardless of the outcome. And that's something else, Meredith, we both know, is that you've got to show up this way, regardless of the outcome. Somebody yeah. else might not be listening to this podcast, and they might not understand the power of kindness, right? So you have to demonstrate it. Not if they're rude to you, then you throw it out the window and, and uh, go back into that old way. Mm -hmm. As I was listening to you, I was thinking just the question, who do I need to be in this moment? Mm -hmm. with this person, you yeah. know, what will help us connect as opposed to push us apart. So yeah. that is such a beautiful example. Yeah. I, I love that. I got chills just listening to you because I could hear, you know, how she came across to this other person and what it must have felt like oh, yeah. to that other person who was used to getting all of these negativity, the complaint, is this whole thing where our ego gets in the way so often, right, that we have that need to prove ourselves right and what we need to be there. I want you to describe this five step process. But before you do, I want to just share with you something in the book that you mentioned that I imagine some of my other listeners might relate to. You had talked about um, that you worked with people who attended Catholic schools and were taught by nuns or other teachers. I was one of those people. I went through Catholic school from grades one to eight, and I had some really small T traumatic experiences with teachers. And I wanted to just share one with you quickly and my audience, because I used that one in the chapter about awakening, where you walk us through going back to that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And um, what happened was when teachers would leave the room, you were not supposed to talk. That was a, you know, a strong rule. Well, I not only talked while she was out of the room, I got up out of my desk because I noticed mm -hmm. the kid next to me was yeah. doing the wrong exercise, you know, and I didn't want him to get in trouble Aww. for not doing the right thing. So yeah. I was trying to be helpful to him. Yes. This was first grade. And I'll never forget it. When the teacher came back, she must have been peeking through the glass door, right? Because mm -hmm. she came back and she called me and a couple of other people up to the room. And I'll, she was, you know, shaking her finger at me saying, if you get out of that desk again, I'm going to tie your 
legs to the chair, you know, and just humiliated me. Mm -hmm. It was one of those imprint moments. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. when I was reading the chapter and I went back to that and I was doing that part of talking to that child, Mm -hmm. I actually teared up. It was very real and very healing to go through that process. So I, I, I share that as a way of affirming your process, really working to identify where in the past have those moments been that have caused these beliefs that have carried on in all these years and, and had a negative impact in some way on the life of the adult. Well, let me ask you a question. So when you think about that little girl at that time now in first grade, how do you imagine her right now? You mean in going back in that moment? Yeah. If you go back to that moment and you think about her right now, what comes to mind for you? Uh, That that she was trying to be helpful. Yeah. She was working from a spirit of being helpful to someone else. Yes. And um, what I had to work through is the teacher you know, doing the best she could, but working out of a place of instilling fear and intimidation. Yes. And that came from her own, you know, background. And so I had more empathy and understanding of the teacher and, mm-hmm. and not the, the fear or the resentment against yeah. how she was in that moment. So you more hold loving this- and kind, more loving and kind to that little girl. Yeah. So you hold this new image. This is what I meant by having new references. So instead of having the nun with the finger in your hand and you feeling humiliated and scared to death, we shifted that. So now when you think about that little girl, what happens is you uh, think of her with love and kindness and how amazing she was that she was from a young age being so helpful. And she grew into this lovely woman who's still doing it to this day. And how awesome that is, right? I mean, that's extraordinary. And and then you also were able to bring in a new level of empathy and understanding that a lot of times, you know, a a six-year-old won't have that, right? And so the fact that you were able to bring in compassion for that teacher, because she must have had some rough stuff happen to her for her to treat little kids that way. And then on top of that, you also have this new level of understanding that it, all those things that nurse or that, um, uh, that nun was doing, that wasn't your stuff. That was her stuff. Mm-hmm. And that again, separates it from you because what we do is we make it our stuff and it's not our stuff. It's their stuff. Mm-hmm. And so all these levels happening at the same time creates this new resource and leaves us with a feeling of love instead of hurt, anger, and resentment. And that's how you keep changing the soil of your subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was beautiful. I just can't recommend your book, you know, more highly for for it really making a difference because you have so many practical exercises that weren't hard. I mean, hard in terms of emotional connection that you make, but not difficult as far as blocking out time to do them. It's each one of them to me was extremely valuable. I, I want to also ask you about cultures of organizations, because you were talking about this one individual and what an impact that person's changes had throughout. Sometimes when you go into a company, you detect uh, a limiting beliefs kind of as a corporate 
environment. And I'm curious to know, what do you pick up on? What is it you hear people saying or doing? And what's your approach? I know you do individuals at a time, not trying to do a whole company, but I would just love to hear, um, what do you, what do you notice? First of all? Well, when I very first, a long time ago, did a, a group program, uh, the manager, it was for a, a mortgage company, and the manager came in and introduced me that I was going to do this program for the next three hours, and I was going to take everybody through it, and it was going to help with their professional development and improve their ability to close sales, right? And then as soon as he introduced me, he left. And so uh, and I, I, want, I followed him one time. I said, where's, where's he going? And they said, oh, he's going to have a cigarette. I'm like, how come he's not in here with us? And they all kind of laughed. And I, he probably thinks he knows this all already. And I thought, that's a problem. And because of his energy, um, he wasn't supportive. He wasn't encouraging. He was kind of a matter of fact, my way or the highway kind of approach. And I thought, wow, we really got to work with our leaders and, and, and the leaders of the company first. Because you cannot blame supervisors, managers, and um, uh, you know, it, it leaders, you know, leads on teams if the culture is reinforcing how they're behaving. I had another uh, person that I walked into their company, and I spent um, 55 minutes out of this hour pro- program getting them completely motivated. It was a sales team for a um, insurance company, and. Uh, they were really struggling. And so I came in there and in 55 minutes, these people were ready to conquer the world. All we had to do was open the door and let them go. And they were just, I mean, they were on a high. And then in the last five minutes, the president of that company said, that was absolutely fantastic. Well done, Tim. Really loved your message. Now let's talk about these atrocious numbers. And within five minutes, I watched them completely unravel everything that I did. People were literally sinking back down in their seats. And I thought I've, I've identified the problem. And, you know, and then I was too young and, and uh, scared of getting fired. Now I could care less, <laughs> but, but at the time, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have the, the confidence to be able to sit down and say, I've identified the problem. And guess who it is, right? And so, and I I wouldn't say you're a problem. I would say this behavior, or here's what I noticed about this action or decision. You separate the person from their behavior. You can attack the behavior, but you always keep the integrity of the person. And people often, you know, get that wrong. So, um, uh, so that was uh, when I learned that you have to work with your leadership team. And so I tended to work with mid-sized companies because I could work with the owners. I could work with the executives. And, um, and for the first three years that I worked with that one company, I mean, I only worked with their executive team. Well, the first two years, then they wanted everybody to experience it. But the first two years, it was just, and it was every two weeks for the first year and a half. And then it went into, um, you know, monthlies, but it was an intensive program with the leadership team and it transformed their company, not just their culture. So cultures are living, uh, it's a living body that um, has a mission. And if you don't give it a mission and purpose, it will take on its own, right? Just like uh, I always talk about, you have to have transparency when you're working with with companies. A lot of uh, executives don't want to share all the facts with their employees because they don't want them to freak out. Well, that's a terrible decision because when you do that, people make up all kinds of their own stories, (laughs) 
And now you have a hundred or 500 different stories and different versions of the truth, instead of just being transparent with one story and one message. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's so many mistakes that people make. So you got to say, how are we going to handle these situations? And it becomes your moral compass. And then you make your decisions based on your moral compass, your mission statement and your core values. And people hate spending so long on corporate values because it might spend three months, you know, in six or seven meetings on, uh, on trying to come up with what the definition of this value really means in action and then coming up with four or five examples of it in action. But when you create that, you're like values blueprint. When you create that and you have a clear definition with clear examples, it gives you clarity and then everybody's on the same page. And then you can't have 10 core values because then you're not good at any of them. You know, you really should only have about three and then pick the one that is your driving value. Like, are you the best or are you the kindest, right? Are you the most affordable, right? Are you the most convenient? What is your core, core value? And then you work as hard as you can to continually improve. That's what Southwest Airlines did. You know, and, and people, other airlines tried to model them and failed because they tried to do what Southwest Airlines did and then tried to do what they were doing at the same time. Right. And that wasn't the formula. And so it didn't work for them. And for Southwest Airlines, uh, it did because they knew they were the affordable airlines and that's what they focused on. And they wanted to be the friendliest as well. And so they were known for that and they still are. Well, before I let you go, I want you to share, please giving my listeners something very tangible, your five-step process for upgrading your beliefs or a belief so that they can imagine and practice some of these things before they read your book. So this is the conscious, logical, cerebral way of doing it, which is a little different than how I take you through it using the, uh, um, the awakening experiences in the book or in the course or in my live seminars. So if you're going to do it on your own, then what you do is first question is identify how you're, how you're feeling, you know, how am I feeling? And then um, what would I have to believe in order to feel this way? So if I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling, uh, you know, uh, worried, whatever it may be, you know, what would I have to believe in order to feel this way? Because you're trying to find the belief and you might ask yourself that question several times on, on peeling the layers of the onion until you get to the core belief, which usually is I'm not safe or I'm not going to be able to figure this out. Right. And so, but it starts with, well, I'm just stressed. I'm just worried. I'm not afraid. I'm just stressed. Stressed about what? Well, that it's not going to get done. And then well, what would happen then? You know, and then <laughs> I end up, you just keep asking and they're like, well, I guess I'm afraid I'm going to, you know, lose everything and end up living in a van down by the river. <laughs> so um, instead we ask ourselves, you know, what would I have to believe in order to feel this way? And then what would I rather believe instead? That would be question number three. What would I rather believe instead? And that's a very powerful question because we're always focused on what we're trying to get away from, but very few of us focus on what we're trying to get to. And so people will tell you what very clearly what they don't want. And when you ask them what they do want, they just give you another version of what they don't want. What do you want? I want to stop procrastinating. Yeah, but what do you want instead? Well, I want to stop putting things off. 
right? And so instead, if I want to, I want to feel like I have clear purpose and I'm on task and I'm laser focused and I know exactly with clarity what action step I'm going to take today to move towards my, you know, ultimate goal. That's what they really want to feel motivated and focused and inspired. So once uh, we ask her, so we start with the emotion, that's step one, how am I feeling? And then two, what would I have to believe in order to feel that way? And then three, what would I rather believe instead? And so, cause you got to name it to claim it. And then four, if I felt that way, what action could I take? What big action, what big domino would knock down all the other dominoes? And that's how you have a priority. You don't have 10 priorities. Prior, the word priority was meant to be singular, not your top 10 priorities. It, one, that's an oxymoron. You're supposed to have one priority. So what's the number one big action that I could take right now that, that would really move the needle here? And then number five is act. Put it into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love those because they're all so real and can be applied to any kind of situation. Tim, this is so wonderful. I just loved our conversation. And I want to recommend again your book, One Belief Away. The subtitle is How to Upgrade Your Unconscious Mind for Prosperity and Inner Peace. And I love those two areas because I think it's those are areas that people struggle with. They, you know, they're anxious about money or life or something that may may be happening. Yeah. And um, you also have some other um, things that are available for folks. So please share with my listeners how they can learn more about you and get some of the resources that you've created. Well, thank you. Yeah. I have an audio program that people really love. It is called the power of your unconscious mind and being one of the world's top hypnotists, you can imagine the stories that I have. (laughs) And so, because people have come to me for everything there is and, and, uh, to, to get help with. And so, um, Uh, both personally and professionally. So I start telling stories about how people um, who felt like their goals were impossible were able to accomplish them by upgrading their unconscious mind and the programming there. And so if you go to, um, what is it? Powermindsetprogram.com, powermindsetprogram.com. You can get a free copy of that uh, Power of Your Unconscious Mind program. And I went through it and it was excellent. And then I got your book right after that because I just loved what you were saying. So I highly recommend everybody go pick that up. And your books are all available on Amazon, I would assume. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, we've got some great books on there. Just released my new one on the health, uh, Losing Weight Without Losing Your Mind. Just came out last week. Oh, and then, uh, it's all my hypnosis secrets for, for losing weight and feeling great. And and uh, I've got a few more lined up for this year as well. So um, I'm into writing books and getting this knowledge out so that uh, more people have, have access to uh, everything I've learned over all these cool years. That's, that's wonderful, Tim. Thanks for letting us know about that too. And where can people connect with you online besides signing up for that course and getting your books? Yeah, if you're interested in the uh, corporate work, then uh, timsure.com. If you're interested in the hypnosis side of things, then uh, Indy, I-N-D-Y, hypnosis.com. And uh, you can find me there. Great. Tim, thank you so much. I love who you are. And I love the work you're doing in this world to help other people overcome their limiting beliefs and really become who they were meant to be. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a delight and a a pleasure. And you are a treasure. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. 
Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.